Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Today we're on part three of my series with Bill Schlegel called Misunderstood Texts. In parts one and two, we examine ten misunderstood verses in the Gospel of John about Jesus. In part three today, we'll examine seven more texts from the rest of the Bible, including Genesis one twenty six and Isaiah 9-6, among others. Repeatedly, Bill Schlegel calls us back to understand each verse within its immediate and canonical context, rather than reading in later theological commitments. Here now is Interview 45, Misunderstood Texts About Jesus, Part 3, with Bill Schlegel. Well, welcome back, Bill Schlegel. Good to have hey. you again. Good to be with you, Sean. Thanks. Let's begin with Genesis one twenty six. Uh, this is a uh, what we call an us text, right? And it's where God says, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man, verse twenty seven, in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Sometimes people will say that God here is speaking as a trinity and involving other members who were with him coordinating in the act of creation. How would you understand this verse? Well, the first thing I would say is it's always important when going back into the, we want to call it the Old Testament, and finding Jesus as God or a trinity, it's important. Is this a New Testament argument? Is this something the New Testament says? Is this maybe Jesus going back and say, hey, you see creation? Here are two persons or three persons. Or is this a argument that Paul makes in his book of Romans, his great treatise of theological things? Is there anybody making this argument in the New Testament? Does Paul go back and say, see, here you see the, the plural for let us make, or the plural of Elohim, of God's name? Is this Paul's argument? He's saying, is he saying, hey, look, here, here's the Trinity, or there's Jesus? And the very clear answer to that, of course, is no, this is not something that you find in the New Testament. Rather, these are later arguments, and if a person wants to trace them, okay, that's the academic work that needs to be done. I think in many cases you'll find that these are arguments that begin in the second century AD and then into the later Byzantine period and so forth. But these are not New Testament arguments, and that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, we should know where the, the originator of these arguments are. It's not from the New Testament. That's the first thing I would say. You don't see anybody in the New Testament saying, hey, Genesis 1.26, don't you see? There's Jesus. Right. So that's very important to keep in mind. Now, I think this is a bit of a a, maybe a popular idea, and uh, perhaps it had some uh, academic backing in the past, but it pretty much no longer does. I looked at the word commentary, of kind of a standard evangelical commentary, and the author of that section on Genesis says, it's universally 
acknowledge now that this is not a reference to the Trinity. Now, wow. academics don't say universally unless they're pretty sure. So in a, in a lot of ways, maybe in this particular verse, the academic interpretation of it hasn't really filtered down to the, you could say, the modern apologist or even the average layperson that still has heard about this argument, heard this claim. Uh, but the, the Trinitarian academics are, are not going to agree with this interpretation anymore. Maybe some in the past, but not anymore. Yeah. A couple other things I would say about this is let's keep in mind that this is the sixth day, okay? This is in connection specifically to the creation of man and woman. God is not uh, making a plural let us statement here in connection to the creation of matter or of the stars of the heavens or of the earth or of the grass or the animals. This is specifically in relationship to the creation of man. And it's pretty much understood now that God is the only creator is making a statement to a angelic heavenly host or sometimes called council. Right. And that makes very much sense when you look at the second part of this verse. He says, so that man will ha have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth. God is making a participation statement to the angelic host and saying, look, you are going to help make. Now, there are two different verbs here in Hebrew, make, and you can see it in English. It doesn't really quite pop out in English. You will help make man the ruler over the earth. And then in the next verse, God himself creates, singular verb, create, different verb, okay? So I think what is going on here is God is saying, look at angelic host, you are going to be involved in helping make man the ruler of the earth, okay? It's not you are going to help me make him, create him from the dust, creating. You are going to help him be the ruler of this earth. Now, we, we know that there are some angels that didn't want that. We call them Satan and other demons. They're jealous of man's rule over the earth. So God could see already, let's say, an issue. Were these angels going to agree to be the assistance of man in man's rule or dominion on the earth? This is the best way to understand that. The Jewish understanding, even modern Trinitarian Christian understanding, is that God is appealing to a heavenly host. So this is a very interesting point you're making here. So you're saying, if I could just clarify, that when it says, let us make man in our image, you're not, you're not looking at that as ontological, as, as talking about their being or their substance. You're looking at that as functional, taking the humans and making them in their image, which you're saying is in dominion. Yeah, I Am think I there's something there. correctly here? Well, yeah, there could, there could be something there. It's not to say that there aren't other ways in which man shares an image. There's two words here in Hebrew, tselem and demut, image and likeness, that man shares something of man and with that angels have as well. Uh, will, for instance, is a big aspect, right? Man has a will. It's not to totally take out any ontological sense, being sense. You're right, there is the function sense in that Man is going to have rule over the earth. And angels were supposed to acknowledge that, participate in that. As it said, what are angels? They are made to be servants, to be ministers. The angels were to agree that the earth is man's dominion. They didn't, not all of them anyway. That will be rectified. 
the Lord is going to straighten that out in the end when the angels bow down and understand that man is God's ruler on this earth. Man is God's appointed ruler on this earth, and the angels will acknowledge that. Yeah. Another aspect of this verse that sometimes I've heard, too, people will point to the plural of the word Elohim. In Hebrew, the word for God is has the plural ending. This is one of the things that the memo didn't come down to the, the popular <laughs> Trinitarian uh, apologist or to the average person, because they'll hear these things sometimes, and they'll think that this is, you know, is an understanding that uh, even the academics will interpret this, the, the name Elohim as something to do with the Trinity. Again, it, it's not. The, the Trinitarian academic world will very much shy away from this idea that the plural of Elohim suggests a Trinity, okay, for very many reasons. But let me just offer a, another kind of interpretation, and it's not just mine. Uh, this is from other people in the past, too. The, the word El, God, the, the singular, or Eloha, it has a connection to power or authority. So when the Bible says that the personal God of Israel, whose name is has a personal name spelled with the yod He vav He. Yahweh or Jehovah, Jehovah. When the Bible says that these authorities and powers, which the pay, I think there's really a polemic sense to the name Elohim being applied to the God of the Bible, because all the Gentiles understood these powers of nature, one over the sea, one over the air, one over the rain, one over the land, one over the reproduction of crops, these different powers as individual gods. And the Bible comes along and says, you know, all those powers, they're all together in our one Jehovah God who made heaven and earth. They had the boldness to say all of these powers are together in our one God. That's why you have the plural. Sometimes people will call it a plural of majesty or plural of intensification and all these kind of things. But it has nothing absolutely to do with the idea that there's more than one God. It's saying all of these so-called gods you think are, are responsible for these different powers, they're all together in our one God, Jehovah. Right, and there's another grammatical point here in Genesis 126. Uh, the first word there is vayomer, which means and God said, or and said, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Singular. Elohim. So the noun is plural, but the verb is singular, and of course the noun God is the subject of the verb. So uh, this is this is a grammatical curiosity or anomaly here, where you have a, a plural form of a noun taking a singular verb, but it's it's not unheard of in Hebrew for this to happen because you have other you have other words that do this. Uh, I'm thinking of like panim face. Maybe uh, Mayim or Shemayim, and, and you have you have some of these plural forms, but they're used in a, a singular sense. And well, w- one more point about the plural too is that if Elohim really means plural, then we should translate it gods, plural. Mm-hmm. But this yeah. is this is in contradiction to any theological Christian system that I've ever heard of. I mean, nobody would translate and. God's said, let us make man, or whatever. I don't, I don't know of any translation that makes that move, because they all recognize that yeah. it, it is plural in form, but yet in the translation we translate it as singular God. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's either 
we have monotheism or we have polytheism as far as grammatical translations are, are available to us here. And that's why Trinitarian scholars are loath to say the Trinity is in the word Elohim. But you're absolutely right, Sean. The word Elohim always is accompanied by a singular verb, singular adjective, unless sometimes, yes, the word can be in context. You can see it means gods. Sometimes it even means angels. Right? You can see like in Psalm 97. It, again, it relates to the idea of power or authority. The scriptures are clear that sometimes the almighty God overall, Jehovah, he designates his authority to others, to angels. So in that way, I think as well, sometimes angels will be called Elohim, but there you can see it's going to have plural verbs, etc. Right. In the yeah. context, you see clearly, but with the word Elohim, in thousands of times, thousands of times, the verb is singular, the adjectives are singular. It's clear that he's talking about one your God, Elohim, Jehovah, is one. Another parallel to this is looking at how the Bible talks about pagan gods, such as Dagon in Judges 16.23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. Mm-hmm. And when it says their god there, it's Elohim, which is still the plural form of Eloha, even though there's no theory out there in the ancient Near Eastern literature or in in modern theology that Dagon was somehow a plurality within himself. This same term is used of him, of this God, and also of the other false gods. So I don't think we can make the case that this grammatical anomaly is in some sense a hint or a result of the inner plurality of the Mm -hmm. Godhead here. Yeah, and I wouldn't even call it a grammatical anomaly. Right. This is the Lord God is bringing the participation of the angels into making man, not creating him as the ruler of the earth. This is the way to understand this. All right. So let's move on. Let's look at Isaiah 9, 6. Are you, mm-hmm. are you OK with that? I am sure. All right. So Isaiah 9, 6 is a text right now. Uh, we're coming up to the holiday season, and we'll hear this sung in uh, the majesty of Handel's Messiah. And we, it reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those of us who, who love that oratorio, it's hard for us not to hear the, the song in the background when we read mm, that verse. It's beautiful. Uh, Absolutely beautiful. So a lot of people will say, having read this verse, that this is a clear indication of the deity of Christ, that he is prophesied to have this incredible name, that he's mighty God, El Gabor. Uh, so how would you interpret this verse in, in the context and with respect to you know, the rest of what the Bible teaches on the same subject? Mm-hmm. Well, again, first thing I would say, Sean, and it can't be overemphasized, is this a New Testament idea? Does anybody in the New Testament go back to Isaiah chapter 9 or anywhere else in Isaiah and say, see here, the Messiah is God? Does anybody in the New Testament ever go back to the Tanakh, we say, right? The Torah, the prophets and the writings to find the deity of the Messiah. The answer to that, again, it's clear. The answer is no. You can look at what Jesus did when he went back into the Old Testament 
to tell the apostles what was predicted about the Messiah. Read Luke 24 two times. He shows two different groups of people here. He went back into the Old Testament and showed them that the Messiah was to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead. And one time he says specifically to be dead for three days and to rise from the dead. This is what Jesus did. This is what the writers of the New Testament did. This is what the apostles did in the whole book of Acts. This is what Peter does. This is what Philip does. This is what Paul does. When they go to the Old Testament, they're not going to it to show the deity of Messiah. They're going to it to show that the Messiah did amazing things, powers, miracles, by the power of God, God working through him. But he was put to death. He was dead. He was raised from the dead by God and exalted to God's right hand. He's now in heaven, the firstborn from the dead. This is what the New Testament does. This idea of going back into the Old Testament, it can't be overemphasized because it, this is an exercise not of the New Testament. This is an exercise of later centuries right. when people wanted to find the deity of Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament. Hmm. Now, somebody asked me the same question not long ago. I didn't want to be too uh, derogatory, but it's really a question that would be asked by a Gentile. I don't know how else to say it. If you're a Jewish person, oh, a Jewish person that is thinking like a Gentile may ask the same thing. But even the mindset, it shows you that you're not thinking from a Hebraic biblical mindset because there's so many places in the scripture where names are given to human beings to describe the quality or the characteristic of who God is. Perhaps the best example of this is the name Jehu, you know, this king of the north who wiped out Baalism from the northern kingdom. Right. Yeah. His, his name simply means he is Yahweh. He is he's Lord. Now, Jehu, the king, is not Yahweh. Okay, these are names that are given to human beings to describe who God is, his character, his nature. I think there's a fancy name. This must be Greek, Theophoric. It's a God-bearing name. It doesn't mean the person is God. It means you're naming that kid to describe a quality or characteristic of who your God is. Now, in the context of Isaiah, Isaiah is the prophet in the late 8th century BC when this mighty empire of Assyria is coming to conquer the northern kingdom. They do so when both Isaiah and the Hezekiah, the king, come, the coming king is a youth. And now... The northern kingdom has been removed, and the southern kingdom of Judah is hanging on. And the big question is, Isaiah tells King Hezekiah, are you going to rely on yourself, your own power? Are you going to rely on Egypt to withstand this Assyrian empire's onslaught? And Isaiah says, there's only one way you can do this. You have to rely on God. Okay? Now, Isaiah is telling us that a descendant of David, in this case, I really think it's Hezekiah himself. A son is born. It's a human being, okay? And the government, this is, goes back to the great promise of God to David, that a descendant of David would rule on the throne. And his, the names given to him here display who God is. A wonderful counselor, mighty God. Now look at the next name. Nobody is going to call the Messiah 
Jesus, everlasting Father. Is this a name for the Messiah? Is it? No, no. Okay, no, the name everlasting Father, this describes who God is. And what happens in the days of Isaiah and the King Hezekiah? That man, Hezekiah, proves, shows us, for instance, that God is powerful, that he's mighty God. Put it this way, God almost breaks protocol in the days of the Assyrian effort to conquer Judah. When one day the people of Judah wake up and the Assyrian forces were decimated, okay? This was, there is no explanation for why King Sennacherib of Assyria left off his siege of Judah. He did. We find it in biblical records. We find it in Assyrian records. We find it in the archaeology that for some reason, this mighty empire, the greatest empire the world had ever known, couldn't conquer a little hill country town of Jerusalem. Wow. Because his forces were decimated. Now that showed us this is mighty God. Hmm. He's our everlasting father, right? He's taking care of us. He'll watch over us. So these names are names of God, sometimes given to human beings, of course, to show us the characteristics and the qualities of who God is. So would you see this as a prophecy ultimately of the Messiah as well, or only of Hezekiah? Oh, no, absolutely. We got a little taste of it in the days of Hezekiah. And this is what the biblical narrative is telling us, is we get these little glimpses of the ultimate completion and fulfillment of the promises and expectations, the promise of God and the expectations of Israel. We get these little glimpses. Hezekiah is a little glimpse. He's, he's a little bit of a picture of what it will be like when Messiah the real one, okay, the ultimate son of David, the complete son of David comes. Oh, this is definitely a picture of Jesus, too. Absolutely. Okay. Sometimes when we take these verses, we forget to look at the next verse. 9-7 of Isaiah. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. You see, there's two individuals here. You have this one that's born as a human being, the Messiah, of which is descendant of David. Hezekiah is a Messiah-like figure. But then you also have the Lord of hosts, two different individuals. The Lord of hosts is working through this Messiah. All right. That makes uh, perfect sense. And these names are really not the same in our culture. In America, we don't even name our kids Jesus. Uh, yeah. Much less uh, God or Yah or or anything like that, unless it is an established biblical name that was already around, like Elijah, for example. We have a, enough of a disconnect between the languages that people don't realize that they're calling their kid, my God, Yah. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's time for dinner. Sure. Uh, bearing that name doesn't mean that that child is Yah or Yahweh, Yehovah, you know, that, but that child is actually or saying something about his God, or really his parents. Absolutely. Yeah. I like to say, Sean, that I know personally about five Emmanuels. Now, none of those are God in the flesh. None of those <laughs> Emmanuels that I know. But why is the person named Emmanuel? It's a reminder that indeed God is with us. And by the way, the Israelites, the Judahites, in the days of Hezekiah and Isaiah, they knew that God was with them when they woke up and they saw the decimation of those Assyrian forces and Hezekiah still there in Jerusalem 
and the little kingdom of Judah still intact. They knew God was with them. Excellent. Our next text, just marching our way through the Bible, uh, is Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. And this one is where the men from the east come to worship Jesus. They had gone to Herod, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And wise men came, and they said to Herod in Matthew 2, 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And, of course, there was this whole conversation with Herod, and then later on they came and they brought their presents. And in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So folks will read this and they'll say, Oh, worship, that's something that you do to God. These wise men obviously believed that Jesus... They believed in the deity of this king, and so they they gave him due worship. How would you discuss this verse? Yeah, well, I would say, again, we're going to say it in about three minutes. So it's just a matter of doing a little bit of study. This whole question of if Jesus is worshipped, he must be God. And I've kind of found that, in some ways, this one's a little frustrating for me because and when I've talked to uh, friends and so forth, and they'll say this, it's like there's a little bit, I don't, I don't want to be too uh, negative, but there's a little bit of biblical ignorance in that idea, not really wanting to know the truth somehow, because it just takes a little bit of Bible study to see that many people are bowed down to, and even with the word worship, the word in Hebrew here, shacha, ishtachavot, and the Greek, something like proskuneo, right. these words are used for other people. When one person bows down toward another person in an appropriate way. And again, it's just a matter of a little bit of Bible study. And when you have people tell me, if you bow down and quote unquote worship using these same words, the Hebrew word I just said, the Greek word, that must mean he's God. Come on, just let's open up the Bible and find it. And I've, don't just go by what somebody says. It's a little bit like for many years I was bringing people around in Israel, right? And you'd hear a tour guide say something. And it would sound, oh, that's interesting. That, you know, just because the tour guide said it, and then it sticks. And I hear other people say it. And it's like, really? This is what you think? Well, go look at the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? And the truth of the matter is, like, <laughs> we see many people who appropriately bow down. And again, it's the same word, it's worship. Now, in English, that word has come to mean an honor that you should only give to God. But it's not in older English, what I think they called mayors in Britain, your worship. Okay, some, right. And you have different titles. Even in English, you can see in the English sometimes that word still comes through in some of our older translations where somebody will uh, bow down and they say he worshipped him. But the perfect examples, I think the main examples, and you can find many others. First Chronicles 29, 20, David is worshipped. The people bowed down and worshipped the Lord and David. Right? He is God's chosen Messiah. And you honor David because God says, that's my king. Now, the same with Solomon, Psalm 72, 11. People come, the Gentile nations, very interesting, the Gentile nations come and they bow down. And these are the same words, right? Sure, your translations into other languages may kind of throw people off a little bit here. 
if you don't use the same word, they'll tend to change it and they'll say he gave homage or he honored or something yeah. like this one. Yeah. Another person is bowing down to a human, but it's the same word. Now, the Gentiles come and they bow down and they worship Solomon. They actually serve Solomon. It's a kind of a uh, religious word as well. Why? Because Solomon is the king that God put in Jerusalem and said, this is my son. You're going to serve him, okay? And if you don't, you're not doing what God Almighty says, because that king is God's representative on this earth, so you honor him as your king. Now, I like to make the point that if people were to bow down, and yes, it's, it's the same word you can, as, uh, as used to God and to man. Now, of course, we only bow down and worship God as God. He's the only one as God. But others are honored for who they are. The Messiah is bowed down for who he is. Abigail, the wise one, bowed down before David because she knew David was selected by God to be the king. If people bow down to Solomon and David, all the more so before the Messiah who gave his life for us. You see, David didn't give his life for me. Solomon didn't give his life for me. But as it says in the book of Revelation, we bow down and we honor Jesus the Messiah because he purchased us by his blood for his God. Revelation chapter 5, right? The lamb is honored in chapter 5. The one on the throne, chapter 4, is honored as God. In chapter 5 of Revelation, the lamb is honored because he purchased by his blood my soul and yours. You better believe I'm on my knees. Right. It's uh, interesting to see how translators subtly color our interpretation by what their decisions are for this word proskuneo, where, for example, if it refers to Jesus, they translate it worship, but if it refers to someone else, then they translate it bow down or fall on the knees or something like that. Exactly, yep. And uh, so f one quick example of that is Matthew eighteen twenty six, where Jesus is just telling a parable mm -hmm. and says, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. So here it's translated— Fell on his knees. Yeah, fell, yeah. fell on his knees rather than mm -hmm. he, he worshipped him. But it's the exact same word. And it, in yep. the English of the King James Version, they just translated proskuneo worship all the time. They were totally mm -hmm. consistent. So then mm -hmm. you can easily see that worship isn't something that's exclusively religious. It's also something done as a sign of respect. Whereas mm -hmm. in these modern versions— we have this sort of modern idea that, oh, worship is, is a religious thing, and it's only done to God. Whereas in, in their culture, it's like the Japanese culture. Bowing is, is very much a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. And even in the religious sense, like we see in Revelation 5, where Jesus is being bowed to in a obviously a spiritual context here and, and given these honorific titles, many of which God also has, Revelation chapter 4, the one who is on the throne. And then mm -hmm. Revelation chapter 5, the one who is next to him, very much parallel to the example you mentioned from the Old Testament, where David is bowed to and worshipped mm -hmm. in, in a religious context as and God's Solomon. representative. And Solomon. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. So any, yep. anything else on this? I, I realize it can get tiring to respond to the same kind of uh, faulty logic over and over again, but it's important to be able to help people and, and to present another way of thinking about things because your average Christian is just 
going with the flow. They mm-hmm. haven't been challenged in this area yeah. because alternate perspectives are not allowed in the churches or in the mm-hmm. universities, right? Sometimes. Remember what Herod said? He said to the Jewish wise men, let me know where the boy is so I can come and worship him. Right. Right. You can see it means in the context of honoring him. Now we know he's lying. But also, let's not forget this passage. These are Gentiles that come and acknowledge that this is Jesus, the Messiah. He's born as the king of the Jews. Wow. This is just like Solomon. The Gentiles come and acknowledge that here is the one appointed by God to be the king. That's what we're doing. Excellent. So let's go to Matthew 28, 9, where it reads, And behold, Jesus met them, this is very similar to the other one, and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Do you have a comment on that one? Yeah. Well, this is the women that see Jesus after he, resur- he was resurrected from the dead. Okay, so you're right. This is similar to the last topic. They, have, they bow down to him. But look at the next verse. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers hmm. right, to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So here he puts himself right in the context. He's a human being, right? So they're bowing down to a human being. You know, this is another thing we should say about this. If we are hesitant or if we refuse to bow down before the human Messiah that God has designated as king, there's a warning. We've got to be careful. We can't say to God, hey, no, God, your human Messiah isn't good enough for me. He must be better than that. Watch out. This is dangerous, right? See what I'm saying? Yeah. Is God's human Messiah, who he has designated as king, who he has exalted to his right hand, is that human Messiah not good enough for me? Are we going to be like Nabal, that fool that said, "Ha, huh, I don't care. I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept this one as my king. God's Messiah is a human being. We need to understand and bow the knee to him. Yes, indeed. All right, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. just 10 verses later, is perhaps the most quoted text to prove the doctrine of the Trinity. And it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the argument goes, there's one name here, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's there's one name, there's a unity, and then there's a plurality of these three members. On the basis of this, we find maybe the not exactly the Trinity, but the seed that uh, later grew up into the tree of the Trinity. We do also find this in other places, uh, so-called triplet verses like Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen that says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And, and there are other instances of this in the New Testament. Just Matthew 28, 19 is the, the most famous. How do you think about this verse? Somebody, when I first came to the understanding of the one true God and his Messiah, Jesus, risen from the dead and glorified. Somebody showed me this verse, and I was a little bit puzzled why they were showing me this verse, because nobody is denying that there is the Son of God. Yeah, this is a very biblical idea. We have one God, the Father, and we have the Son who was promised. This is a messianic title. This is the way God is going to redeem us through his Son. And this was, he's going to be the one that brings the regenerated earth, this new kingdom, which we long for. 
He's the king. So this is a triad, but this, these are three different, let's call them personalities, right? The Holy Spirit is something Jesus said God will give you, okay? This, will be a, this is a promise that God will give to you. There's a triad here, but there's nothing about three persons in one essence. That's the way I would say it. Nobody's denying that there is a Holy Spirit. Nobody's denying that there is the Son of God, and nobody's denying that there's the Father. This is a very biblical idea that there are three persons in one essence. It's not there. Right. What about the name here? What do you think about that? This is the biblical presentation that there's one God, the Father, and he promises us that there's going to be this unique son that will inherit the earth and be the ruler and the king. And we, have, and we also find out that he is the way in which our redemption is worked and that God as well, again, I'm saying the same thing, that he promises his Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit is a person, but it's God himself at work in our lives while the Son is not present physically. So these three definitely are together in a sense, right? That's why you can have the singular name, right? It, but it is interesting to see that when people baptize in the book of Acts, it's always in the name of Jesus. I still, again, I don't have a problem with this. This is, this is the way I see the scriptural presentation. This is who God is. This is who he says and who he is and how he's going to work with us on this earth. Very well. All right, let's move on to Romans 9.5 then, uh, which reads, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Uh, I just read that from the English Standard Version, and this is a uh, obviously from the Apostle Paul, and he's calling Christ God over all. Mm-hmm. At least in the translation I'm reading here. Yeah. Could you walk us through just a little bit of the discrepancy there among translators and what the issue is? First thing I would say is, this is the book of Romans for crying out loud. This is the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. Okay, This is the treatise of the greatest theological ideas that he is presenting to us Gentiles. I, I read the book of Romans not so long ago, and I would say one of the major themes in the book of Romans is, hey, you Gentiles are fellow heirs, just like he says in Ephesians, that the participation of the Gentiles in the promises to the Jews, this is one of the main theological ideas that Paul is presenting. Are we really going to expect that in one verse, Romans 9, 5, in one verse that has both grammatical and textual problems, Paul is going to tell us about the deity of Jesus? Please, I, I really don't understand, now that I've come to this understanding of who Messiah is, I don't understand this claim. Apparently, you know, the Trinitarian commentators are, are split on this. 50% think it's going to go one way according to the punctuation. We'll get to the punctuation, right, and the, grammar, the textual problems with the verse. 50% you know, are going to say this is a, a hymn to the, the one God, the doxology to God, okay? 50% are going to say that the verse is saying that Christ is God. But come on, this is the book of Romans. If Paul wants to tell us that Christ is God, he better sit down and write it out right? Right, right. with chapters. Please. It's looking at one tree that's been kind of hacked away and missing the whole forest. If you're going to take Romans 9, 5, is there not another 
verse in the book of Romans that can tell me that God is three in one, that Jesus has two natures and all these kinds of things? Please. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul tells us that Jesus has a God. In Romans chapter 15, verse 6, he says, with one voice, may we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. So our Lord Jesus has a God. We see this in many other letters of Paul, that he says things like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. Okay, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. So we've got to take all of what Paul says. And is there any, any whisper of him saying that Jesus is God? Well, the only verses you can go to are these kind of uncertain textual verses. One verse, really, in all of the book of Romans? Okay, now let's get to the textual items. But to me, even before we get to the textual questions, it's just, it's really a preposterous uh, idea. And I, well, let's leave that out. Let's, let's go to the grammar, right? The question here is, where do you put the period or the comma? Before you get into that, I, I just wanted to comment on what you just said there. W- what I hear you saying is that if Paul, who is a keen thinker and a careful communicator, if Paul wanted to say or teach the doctrine of the deity of Christ, he has plenty of space to do so. It does not appear to be the burden of Romans or of his other epistles. He doesn't have an extended chapter on it. He doesn't have an epistle on it. He doesn't even have three verses on it. There's uh, one verse here and another verse there, and in each case, there is some sort of translation issue, manuscript issue, or other kind of question of interpretation where the verse can legitimately be taken in multiple different directions, depending mm-hmm. on your presuppositions and what sort of scholarship you're exposed to. So the resurrection is not like that. The new covenant reality of Christ is not like that. His death for our sins is not like that. The participation of the Gentiles the participation, is not like that. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are the subjects he's on about, and he's not coy. Paul is not a shy person who's like, oh, I don't want to say mm-hmm. too much, and then just suddenly blurt out, oh, and by the way, he's God overall, and then not say anything about it and move on. I mean, this to me sounds like a doxology where he's overwhelmed in the moment, and he he just blurts out a a praise to God before moving Mm -hmm. on to the, you know, and you have the amen at the end of it. So Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't take this as the place to introduce a new doctrine at all, and I think that's, mm. that's your point here, right? Yep, that's what he's saying. Look, at he's saying about what are the advantages of the Israelites, of the Jewish people. In verse 4, they are Israelites. To them belong the sonship. Right? They're called sons of God. Right? The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the temple system, and so forth. The promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And of their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. Period. In the Greek, it doesn't have a period. Even the version I'm reading, it puts it in there. Okay. This is what he's saying. Look at the Israelite people. The Messiah comes from them. We Gentiles are in left field. Matter of fact, we're not even in the game. We don't understand that there has to be a Messiah. Okay. We call Jesus Christ now in Greek, but we kind of forget what it means. This is a Jewish biblical idea from them come the Messiah. And then Paul says, God, who is overall be blessed. This is a doxology to the one God who's worked through Israel like this. 
Now that same phrase, that God is overall, this is Ephesians 4, 6, right? This is the only other place where it says that someone is overall, and it's God the Father. One God, and the Father of us all, who is overall. And also even the idea of blessed, right? Which says, the God who is overall be blessed. This is a phrase that goes to God the Father. Like the sentence I just started out with, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 3, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the phrase here, God, who's overall be blessed, it refers to the one God who has worked through and in the people of Israel foremost by bringing us the Messiah through them. Yeah. It's interesting about the punctuation issue because as most people, most Bible students are aware, the old manuscripts were written in all capital letters with either no or very, very little punctuation whatsoever. And of course, we don't have the originals that the apostles wrote. We have copies uh, that were done later because paper only lasts so long. But uh, I'm just looking through a couple of manuscripts here, Bill, and I'm, I'm really kind of impressed by how there are little punctuation marks between sarka, which is the word for flesh, and mm. then o, which is the word for the or the one who. Uh, I'm looking at Codex Vaticanus, which is uh, the the one stored at the Vatican and stewarded by the the Roman Catholics. I'm looking also at Alexandrinus, and uh, Alexandrinus is the manuscript from uh, northern Egypt, Alexandria, and this one also has just a, a subtle little mark in the middle of the line, which typically would indicate a semicolon, more or less, or or you know uh, some sort of stop. And then uh, a little extra space there before the next phrase begins. And so um, what's interesting is that Alexandrians uh, were the ones who invented the Trinity idea. And uh, the Catholics and Vaticanus have all the uh, love for the Trinity. Uh, And yet these manuscripts are testifying that when ancient scribes wrote these and copied them out, they said, oh, this is a break here. There's a natural break here. It's not just continuing the thought of uh, Christ, who is overall God. Mm-hmm. It's saying yeah. Christ, who is Christ according to the flesh. Stop. Yeah. The one who is yeah. overall God, be blessed, be blessed. forever. Yeah. Amen. And mm-hmm. um, this is, in fact, what the New American Bible does, which is the uh, standard modern Catholic version, the New American Bible. It says, there's the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, period. God who is over all be blessed forever, period. Yep. Amen, period. So, mm-hmm. look, it's funny, too, because the Roman Catholic Bible, it, in some cases, is excessively honest because they don't have the Sola Scriptura doctrine that we Protestants love so much. Mm-hmm. And so they can say, well, oh, yeah, the Bible doesn't really teach the Trinity, but we still believe in it because the Church is our authority. Whereas mm-hmm. a Protestant doesn't have that flexibility. A Protestant has to say, well, if it's, if it's not in the Bible— then I don't. You got to go find it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and then on their their footnote in the NAB it says some editors punctuate this verse differently and prefer mm-hmm. the translation quote of whom is Christ according to the flesh who is God over all end quote. However, Paul's point is that God who is over all aimed to use Israel, which had been entrusted with every privilege and outreach to the entire world through the Messiah. Yep. Uh, and it's just like sometimes you find amazing honest statements from the Catholic sources, or from skeptical or atheist scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, this is one of those moments where 
the facts of the matter are are shining through beyond the dogma itself, which uh, I'm sure whoever wrote this footnote holds the doctrine of the Trinity very strongly. Yep. Are we good, or you want to move on? I'm good, yeah. Okay, moving on then to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. These two texts are similar in the sense that one translation will be different than another. But Acts twenty twenty eight says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so mm-hmm. uh, since blood is associated with God here, the contention is that God is actually referring to Jesus, because the Father and the Spirit obviously don't have blood, but the Son does. And so this is an indication where Jesus is called God. What's your take on this one? This is the book of Acts, okay? Read the book of Acts. Is there any place, any, take, leave this one little verse out that's, again, it's got textual problems, punctuation problems, these kinds of things. What is the main thrust of the book of Acts? There is no place in the book of Acts where the apostles are preaching the deity of Jesus. It's just not there. From the beginning, they're saying Jesus is the Messiah. Look at, I like to tell people, everything you need to believe really is in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. Peter is standing up at the Pentecost and saying, here's what happened. Listen, people of Israel, the man Jesus of Nazareth, whom God attested to you by the mighty works that he did through him in your midst, whom you put to death, God has raised from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, made him both Lord and Christ. It's all there. This is what the apostles are saying in the book of Acts. Yes, the Messiah had to be rejected, suffer, die before entering his glory. That's the, th- that's the theme of the apostles, that he's the Messiah. That, yes, he's been put to death, but he's risen from the dead. That's the book of Acts. So let's not, again, take one tree that's been hacked up. And I say hacked up because there's the, the textual problems here. And hang all of our theology on the book of Acts on that one verse, please. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. So now, more specifically on this verse, there's a couple of different textual issues. For one, you have some texts that will say, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas to care for the church of the Lord. Okay, you have a, some textual variants. Some say God, some say the Lord. And sometimes, yes, Jesus has the title Lord. I know this is hard for English speakers too, and it's, one, it's another one that makes me a little frustrated. People think by calling somebody Lord, it means that you're calling them God. It does not. In Hebrew, you have the word Adon, and you can call somebody Sir using this title Lord. Unfortunately, the translators of the Greek took the personal name of Yahweh, yod heh and translated with the same word, uh, kurios, Lord. So it gets confusing for us English speakers. But to call somebody Lord doesn't mean you're calling them God. The Greek translations, the English, when they want the personal name of God, yod heh they capitalize it. But that's even hard to see sometimes because they make the smaller... They make the O-R-D of the word Lord a little bit smaller than the L. So you kind of swoop right through it and you don't recognize that's the personal name of God. So all that to say, you do have a textual variant here. You have the, the word Lord instead of God, which he obtained by the blood of his own. This is what it means, the blood of his own. And 
if the text really is God here, and I think it could well be, to shepherd the flock, the church of God, which he, that is God, obtained with the blood of his own. Could it be his own blood? And like you said, we all understand that Almighty God doesn't have blood. Is it his own blood or is it the blood of his own? And many translations then insert the idea of his son, his own son. That makes perfect sense that this is what Paul says, because he says it so many other times in the same way that God has worked salvation for us through his son. God was in Christ working our salvation. Okay, this is a phrase from Paul. And we have a perfect parallel with such a statement in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, you can see it as well in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. But let me just turn to Revelation real quick. You have the idea of us being purchased by the blood of Jesus. So, yes, God is at work in Christ. And this is his own son who shed his blood for us. I'll read Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, I think it is. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, speaking of the Lamb. For you were slain, and by your blood did ransom men for God. So here we have the human Messiah, Jesus, ransoming men for God. God was at work in Christ to ransom us for him. Very good. I love how every time we get to one of these verses, you step back and you say, look, this is the book of Acts we're in here. Don't just fixate on the verse. Obviously, you want to do your due diligence with the verse. You don't want to paper over it or ignore it. But you always want to read that verse within the larger context. And as you said, the context of the book of Acts over and over again is that there is this God of Israel who has done this amazing thing through this Messiah who is now identified as Jesus of Nazareth through the resurrection from the dead. So to suddenly slip in a little, where is the, the cornerstone upon which we can build the foundation of this edifice that we call the mm. doctrine of the Trinity that has held sway for so many centuries? Where is it? I don't see, I don't see it. You know, this, mm-hmm. this, this verse to me looks like quicksand, you know, and, um, you know, the scholars are saying, all right, it's God and not Lord, but the, the evidence is evenly divided. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some of them are saying, it, his own blood. Others are saying that it's the blood of his own son. They're pretty divided on that, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not yep. picking obscure translations here, Bill. This is the mm-hmm. NRSV, which yep. is the standard scholarly Bible that you— any any uh, secular school where you take a Bible class, they're going to have you get the NRSV. Uh, and the NET is, is, is not done in a corner either. I mean, this is a big-time translation by very conservative Bible scholars that already believe Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. We don't want to put our— our theological stake in the ground here, considering the verse has this uncertainty behind it. Yeah, the fact that people would even appeal to it shows desperation, mm. quite honestly. Excellent point. If yeah. you've got to go to this verse in Acts yeah. for your main theological idea of who God and his Messiah are, that's desperate. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here for today, Bill. We've got some more text to discuss. I really appreciate your perspective. And, uh, you know, I've been in this for a while, but, you know, I'm learning from your different pre- angle of approach and perspective here. And I really appreciate this, uh, this conversation. I'm learning a ton. I learned a ton from you. Learn a lot every day. <laughs> We're it's learning amazing. from each other. That's great. Amen. Thanks so much for taking the time, Bill.
Hey, Sean, thank you. Well, that's it for today. We've got one more part on this series, and I've really been encouraged by all the feedback and the downloads that people are doing for this series, and it certainly does warrant one more. If you haven't yet, listen to parts one and two. You can find those in your podcast app on your phone or by going to restitutio.org and searching for misunderstood texts about Jesus. I also have a link to it in the show notes for this episode. If you haven't yet, also listen to Interview 31, where you can learn about Schlegel's backstory. I just want to read out a couple of comments on the last episode of Interview 44, Misunderstood Text About Jesus Part 2. Troy Salinger writes, Great series, Sean. I haven't heard anything new to me, but I really like the way Bill explains the scriptures. I hope and pray that many are listening who are not familiar with this way of reading scripture. Greg Logan writes on John 10.30, I appreciated Sean bringing the foregoing context into play in terms of understanding the appropriateness and sense of Jesus' statement. I have tended to begin in John 10.30 and only gone forward and not backwards, and the foregoing context adds a great dimension. Yes, Greg, indeed, uh, John 10.30 is sort of in the middle (laughs) So it's helpful to go backwards and forwards on that one to get a good understanding of what's going on there. And then only three minutes later, Greg Logan commented again, this time on John 20.28, and I don't think I can read out his entire comment on here, but he's pushing back against Schlegel, saying that, quote, I am severely troubled by Bill's highly strained exegesis ultimately Kermit Zarley's exegesis of this text with respect, it is severely flawed and cast despite, I think he meant to say dispute there, on our efforts to have a truly biblically-based approach to the typically cherry-picked text used to support a hypostatic Christology. And then he goes on to quote John twenty twenty eight in Greek and make some comments there. It seems to me, just summarizing a bit, that his main point here is that in the text it says, Apikrithi Tomas ke ipen afto, o kyrios mu ke otheos mu, which translates, answered Thomas and said to him, the Lord of me and the God of me. Now, uh, his point here on afto is that this is a singular pronoun, the word him. So there are not two addressees here. There is only one. So it's it seems to me that Logan is here arguing for a representational view that Jesus is here properly being called God in the same sense in which he's called God in Hebrews one eight, and the Davidic king is called God in Psalm forty five six, that he is bearing the title, as it were, of the one who sent him. He concludes by saying, Thus, I am very comfortable in saying that the man, Christ Jesus, is my Lord and my God. So if you'd like to read the rest of Greg Logan's comment, it's a bit lengthy. He's making a very good point here, I think. You don't have two addressees. I'd be curious to see if Schlegel responds to this or not. And then also on Podcast 152, Why Didn't God Call the Light Light by John Walton, a rebroadcast of his presentation, Kenneth A. LaProd writes, in addition to The Lost World of Genesis 1, which is John Walton's book, one might also enjoy The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest by John Walton and his son. 
especially if there's an interest in how such ancient worldview perspectives might apply to understanding Joshua and other related texts. There is a lot of modern controversy about this subject. I also recommend a couple of other scholarly, thought-provoking books that were helpful to me along these lines, even if they contain ideas with which I might not agree. Uh, The first one is Seriously Dangerous Religion by Ian Proven and The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Ken, thanks so much for those recommendations. I am familiar with Michael Heiser's work. I had not heard of Ian Proven before, but just scanning on Amazon, it seems like that would be a very interesting book. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. This is certainly a very important aspect of Bible study, being able to situate ourselves and to recontextualize ourselves into the times and thoughts and language and culture and history of the various books of the Bible so that we read them on their own terms rather than reading in our ways of thinking so that we distort them. We don't want to do that. What we want to do is understand what they meant originally and then also ask the second question, which is, what does this mean to me today? But not until we first figure out what it meant originally Otherwise, we can easily get ourselves into trouble. Well, that's it for today. If you haven't uh, yet heard about the debate that's coming up on the Trinity subject, please check out restitutio.org. I've got a post on there on the debate between Dale Tuggy and Michael Brown. Um, very much looking forward to that in, on January 11th at 7 p.m. in the Charlotte area of North Carolina. So if you're able to go, I'd love to see you there. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And remember... The truth has nothing to fear.